So the, the whole purpose of this series is to provide background information on the influence that Christianity had on the formation of America. <clears throat> We're going to deal with the period of time between 1750 and 1791 and the influence that Christianity had in that period of time. So here are the objectives. There are two significant events that supported the cause of the revolution in 1776 <clears throat> that we often don't think about. The other one is what type of scripture can be supported, me, what type of government can be supported from scripture? What was the status of the British colonies in 1750? And what was the, what's the significance of looking at our history starting in 1750? I mean, why not start in the 1400s or in 1812 or something? So we'll talk about why, why this is important. <clears throat> if you go online, and you either ask friends, or you're standing in a crowd and you ask friends, that you believe America should be, or has been, or ought to be a Christian nation, you'll get these kind of comments. You're accused of being uh, the American Taliban, or, or being like the Islamic fundamentalists, or you're, you're supporting the Inquisition and the Crusades, or you want to force your beliefs onto others. Okay? If you go on and Google, okay, is America a Christian nation, you get this kind of craziness. The answer to the question is no. The U.S. Constitution is a wholly secular document. It contains no mention of Christianity or of Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, not true, but that's what you're... America has never been a Christian nation. Well, America may be a Christian nation in language, but it's far from it in practice. How we treat people, how we manipulate, how we take take advantage of how we live in a country with so much wealth and there is so much poverty. For some people, that means it's not a Christian nation. Okay? They obviously have not read what life was like when Jesus walked the earth because there was a significant amount of poverty in that period of time. So these are three of the founders of the country that, that claim in their writings and, and speeches that they gave that have been written, that the, the country was founded on Christian principles. Benjamin Rush, okay, middle there, Charles Carroll, and Samuel Adams. I mean, we all know it's Sam because he's only got the one suit. Every picture you see of him will be that suit because that's all he had. His friends got together and had, got that for him, okay? So th these are a couple of signers of, of the Constitution, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, both of them in their writings, declared that the country was founded on Christian principle. These are, are jurists or legal minds. Uh, John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of America. James Kent, who was an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court in New York. And Zephaniah Swift, who wrote a, a number of documents dealing with uh, with America's law, and in all of those, not every one, but in the majority of them, he points out that, that the law was based on Christian principles as well as the country. Then we got these presidents that in their writings and in their speeches have declared that the country is founded on Christian principles. You know, Lincoln, Truman, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of all people, and Dwight D. Eisenhower, amongst others. Okay? So this was a great example that I ran across of this issue 
of is America a Christian nation and what do the courts have to say about it? So back in 1892, the, the Church of the Holy Trinity hired a clergyman from England. And, and there were a group that brought a suit against them because that was a violation of federal law forbidding the importation of foreign contract laborers. Okay? So that went through the court system up to the Supreme Court and uh, David Brewer was the Supreme Court Justice at the time and he wrote the opinion. And you can see in here with the little dots that the opinion was long, but I pulled out key pieces. No purpose of action against religion can be imputed to any legislation, state or national, because this is a religious people. This is a Christian nation. Okay. Now, the court had provided 87 precedents. They quoted founding fathers, US Congress, and state governments in those 87 precedents, okay, that America is, in fact, a Christian nation. So Benjamin Franklin, who isn't thought to be the most religious of our founders, this was one of his comments. I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. So the question that I had early on was why do we even bother to study history? Why do we want to do that? Well, th this was Santana's comments. How we view our history determines the decisions we make in the present and ultimately decide the course of our future. And a quote of his that's often used is this one. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So, so our history really is important both now and, and into the future. So this was Thomas Jefferson's comment, history, by appraising them of the past, we enable them to judge the future. And one of my favorites is Daniel Webster. I mean, look at, you know, the picture of him doesn't make you want to walk up and talk to him, but this is a gentleman that he believes that God told him to write a dictionary, okay? Now think about that task. There, there were no dictionaries at the time. Right? And, and he, he firmly believed that God said to him, I want you to write a dictionary. So the first dictionary we had was in English. And this is the guy. Okay? So this is his comment. History is God's providence in human affairs. Now it's important as we begin to study history that we understand there are two general views of history. One of them is called the accidental views of history, that things just happen because they happen. The other one is the conspiratorial view of history, and, and this is a quote that I took out of, a, out of a book. Things happen because an unseen hand makes them happen. My belief is things happen because people cause them to happen. Okay? I mean, there are people who influence history. The Rothschilds is one, one family that comes to mind. Okay? Uh, the Rothschilds didn't disappear. They're, that family is alive and well. The DuPonts is another family that makes things happen. Uh, I remember back in the early 70s, there were, um, th there were, I'm trying to think of a number, I think there were 700 millionaire DuPonts in the world. Now in the 70s, half a million bucks was a lot of money. 
and you've got that kind of money, and there's a bunch of you, you can influence things. So those are the two views. Reality is it's things that we write down are somewhere in between those. Because in any given period of time, there is so much going on that you can't record it all. So those of us who like to do history, we have to start in with some kind of premise. My, my premise, my belief is that America was founded on a Christian, as a Christian nation, and so I set about finding material that supports that view. If you wanted to prove that it wasn't, you could probably find writings from that period of time that, that you could hold up and say, you know, here's the proof that it's not. Okay? I think the proof that it is is overwhelming, but that's, that's my view. So where possible here, I have used original documents okay, and original information in order to put the material together. So what's not covered is the period of time from 1497 to 1750. This is the, the Cabot's voyage. It's not that that's not an important period of time, but it it's not, wasn't important to the premise that I said about, because part of, part of my premise and my question to myself was, what, why, would, why would this group of people choose to revolt against the most powerful force in the world at the time? Okay. And especially when I, when I discovered these truths, you can see that these are the English colonies. This is Fra France claims ownership of that, and of course, so do many of the colonies. And, th and this is Spain down here, okay? By the time we get to 1750, a couple of these colonies have been in existence for 144 years, okay? Virginia and the other, another piece of, uh, came, broke off of that. I'm sorry? Okay, yeah, you're right, okay? So local governments were well established. We got 140 years to pull this together. Well-established governments, all who were free were British citizens. They were fairly independent and very successful. This was the most successful place on the planet. So why, why would, under these circumstances, would they choose to go to war against a government that had won every battle on five continents? Okay? They were undefeated around the world for the most part. I mean, they've lost some little battle here, but in terms of wars, I mean, you, standing against the British was a bad move. So this is part of what helps me understand what was going on, is there were a group of pastors in, in New England, and, and Alice Baldwin here has put together this, this beautiful little book. If, if you pick this up, and, and next time I'll try to remember to bring a couple of copies, the first 30 pages of this is about probably about all you want to read, okay? Because it really is a dissertation. So you get, you get a quarter of a page of information and the rest of the page is reference, okay? So, but it's a good book. I mean, it's well done. So here's, here's what was going on. Pastors in New England were attempting to understand the role of government. How does she know that? Well, these are, her, this book is put together dealing with Sermon, written sermons and letters that these pastors were sending back and forth to one another trying to figure some of this out. They're going, what is our role as a pastor with our congregation with government? Okay. What type of government is supported by scripture? What, was our, what is our role then as a pastor in the government? And it turns out the people that we call founders were asking the same kinds of questions. 
during about the same period of time. Okay. So here were some conclusions that these pastors reached. The relationship between an individual and God is a covenant relationship. And the relationship between government and the governed is also a covenant relationship. Okay. Governments that are supported by scripture, the government structure supported by scripture, are those that obtain their authority from God and from the governed. Those are the only governments that they could find that scripture supported as being a positive influence. I mean, the, you know, we, we've read enough of the Old Testament to know that there were some pretty evil governments out there. So, but, so we're not talking about just the fact that it's there that it's supported, okay? The other piece that they found was that scripture supports only those governments that are in compliance with natural law. Well, what is that? Well, that's God's law, according to, to these pastors. And, and, and it kind of boils down here to the protection of life, liberty, and property, which is reflected in our Declaration of Independence. We did life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And when we get there, we'll talk about how we, why it went from property to pursuit of happiness. So this was one of, the, one of the great minds of the time, was Sir Edwin Koch. Uh, he, he did a, a lot of writing dealing with, with legal matters. So he was an English judge, and, and this is one of his quotes. The law of nature is that which God, at the time of creation of the nature of man, infused into his heart for his preservation and direction. It, it is the moral law called the law of nature. That's God's law. So the, one of the questions that comes up is, what was the fundamental reason that people would leave England and other places in Europe and come to America? Why do we think they want to do that? Anybody? I told you I to try and sit quiet. No, it's okay, John. <laughs> well, here, here is what I've concluded. Okay? That the, I mean, we all could do all this stuff about you know, religious freedom and an opportunity to buy property and all these pieces. I mean, those are important. But I, we boil it down, it's, it's liberty based on natural law. Unless we understand this is our fundamental, okay? then we won't know it's gone until, until it's pecked away at. And when people like, like Obama comes along and says, I want to make a fundamental change to America. He's talking about a change away from natural law. Okay? That's the fundamental change. Because this is our fundamental. And we don't want a fundamental change. Or we want liberty. Yep. So um, even though they were um, British colonies, they still were acting differently than. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, for, for a long time, the king just left them alone. Okay? I mean, it, when you're involved in wars on five continents, and these people are not causing you a problem. So you think, okay? But, but we'll find out what happened to them, what, what, what happened. So, so the, give me liberty or give me death. We've all heard that. That's a Patrick Henry saying. But it, but it came out of a speech that he was giving 
at the Virginia Assembly on January, excuse me, March 23rd, 1775, okay? And it was about the rights of the colonies. And he concluded the speech with the cry for the revolution, give me liberty or give me death. So there were, there were two major events, I believe, that happened that spurred a lot of this that influenced the clergy, local governments, and the citizens in general. And here they are. One of them is the Great Awakening. It happened a period before about 1729 to about 1760, somewhere in that, that period. And then the French and Indian War from 1774 to 1759. Okay? The rest of the world called it the Seven Year War because it lasted for seven, you know, lasted a couple more years in other parts of the world. Those two events are significant, and let's look at why. The Great Awakening birthed an awareness that each individual can have a personal relationship with Christ, not dependent upon the pastor or the church, okay? That's an individual situation. Now, the, the downside of that is now you have to have, it, that's your responsibility. So it, it increases the requirement for individual responsibility. If, the, if my salvation is not up to the church and up to me, then I have some responsibility here. So that's a key piece. The French and Indian War, colonists figured out, wait a minute, we, we did most of the battling here. We can defend ourselves. We really don't need the redcoats for this. Uh, so they didn't need the king's protection. And, and out of that, they said, wait a minute, when we, when we bring the king in to bring the redcoats in to help us, our liberties are reduced. Okay? Now, I don't know that for, for most people that it was an aha moment, but it, but it is that slowly pecking away, and we'll see when we get into this, that, that it went slowly and then it speeded up dramatically, the taking away of liberties. And, and the... The conclusion you, you can see easily coming on that there's going to be a war. Well, and that's the theme in the last of the Mohicans that pointed out the uh, epiphany that most people had was that the king's financial interests <coughs> outweighed their lives. Yep. Sure, because the colonies only existed for the benefit of the mother country. So this is my conclusion. The Great Awakening and the French and Indian War, along with the influence of clergy, were key elements in the rebellion that followed in 1776. I firmly believe that it hadn't been for pastors, okay, we would all still be British citizens. So this is nine lessons in 12 sessions, and as we go through, sometimes I call them sessions and sometimes I call them lessons, but. But these are the pieces we're going to cover. The introduction today, then the colonies as of 1750. We do a brief overview there. Then life in the colonies. What was life like for people living in the colonies in the 1750s? What, what, did, what did they do for a living? Where, where did they go? What was fun? Then there are activities leading up to the revolution. These are activities primarily spurred on by the king. Okay? And there's a bunch of them. Then we'll look at the role of churches the lives of the signers, the Constitution, and we'll play a now what game. And so I'm going to look at a little more depth at each of these so that you get a, a picture of where we're going over, over the next few weeks. So what, next week we'll start in what were the political, economic, and religious conditions 
primarily in England, but we'll include some of Europe. Because several people were trying to get out of Europe, but they often would end up in England okay, and then be able to come over. Okay. So what were the taxes and what did they do with them? You know, how, how much was the tax load? And what did the governments do with that? What is the difference between New England colonies and middle colonies and southern colonies? And there are three governmental kinds of colonies, charter, proprietary, and royal. And by the time we get to 1776, they're almost all royal, okay? which means that the king has absolute control. Okay? They, most of them start out as charter. What was the court system? What was the foundation for, for the laws that they had? What about the Native Americans? What, what was the good news and bad news influence dealing with Native Americans? How involved were they in stuff, okay? How was land obtained? Most of the stuff we read in history books is we just took everything, okay? Well, for the most part, the, the land in the colonies was purchased. Now, was it a fair price? I, I doubt it, okay? But it was purchased. And Pennsylvania was one of the big ones and where they just they bought it in pieces as it went, went across. What was the influence of France, England, Spain, and the Native Americans on, on daily life? What impact did slavery have? How did that get started? Okay. And, and then we'll, the Great Awakening is going to get in here in, in several places because it has an influence over a long period of time. Then we'll start looking at, at individual lives in the colonies in 1750. So we're going to talk about what were the cultural differences based upon the country of origin, religion, and financial status in urban and rural. I mean, what, what, were, the, what were those cultures like? Okay. What was a colonial home like? How, what was transportation? How did they get around from one place to another? Okay. I mean, some stuff we read about roads, and, and when you get down and read a little more depth about roads, we're talking about a place where the brush was cut back, you know? So it wasn't paved roads. What did people do for work? What was, the, what was the significant role of women? Did women have a special role in that period of time? Okay. And, and if you really want to look at that, I'd pick up the book called Adams and read about Abigail, because most of the book is about Abigail. What was that education like? Was it different in the northern colonies than the southern colonies? What did they use for a textbook? Okay. What kind of clothing did they wear? What, what did they do for fun? What was the role of the church or churches? Okay. Then we're going to get into the activities leading up to the revolution. And so this is some of those. So I'm going to start back a little bit earlier. Navigation Acts of 1650, 1596. And there's another set of those come around in, in 1774. Uh, essentially what those said, listen, if you make a product in the colonies, let's say you make the product in Pennsylvania and you want to send it to Georgia, you have to put it on a vessel and send it to England, pay a tax, and then it's got to come back. And what you absolutely can't do is trade with any country outside of the colonies. You can't go to the Caribbean and trade. You want something from the Caribbean, okay? You have to get folks from England to go there and get it and bring it to England and then bring it over to you. And, and people like Hamilton, who's 
was raised by his uncle when his uncle passed away, left him with a fleet of vessels. He went, well, you know, it's really not that far down there. So why don't I load up some stuff and take it down there and we can bring rum back. Okay? And so they were, they were making money, you know, hand over fist, so to, so to speak, okay? uh, in violation of, of this stuff. Then the big one is the control of the Ohio Valley. That, that's, that's one of the key sparks of that's the French and Indian War. Who's going to control the expansion into the Ohio Valley? Is it native land, Indian land, that the king called it? Does France own that? Does England own that? Okay. So that's, that's a major piece. The Great Awakening again, and the French and Indian War. And this is Fort Duquesne here, this picture. It come, when you do searches on the French and Indian War, it's one of the things that will pop up a lot, because this, this was the kingpin of the start here. And then the proclamation of 1763 that said if you, if you have property out there past the, the line that they put down through the Appalachians, you can't live out there. You're going to move back here. Okay? And that impacted my family because I had family that was building, were building cabins out in western Pennsylvania. And so they weren't happy about that, and so they joined the revolution. Then we have more the impact of clergy. Then this thing called the Stamp Act, then the Townsend Act, uh, then the overall cost of the war. Where they've got the Boston Massacre, the Currency Act of 1764, the Declaratory Act, the Quartering Act, and the Sugar Act. Okay, these are the key ones. There were several others, but all of these, <coughs> excuse me, impacted every one living in the colonies. And so you can see we just start pecking away at stuff here, okay? Now, that's, we got that stuff, now we just gotta keep going. We, you know, we, I just mentioned the Boston Massacre, but I stuck it up here again. So we got the Tea Act, they got the, they got the Gatsby Affair, which is kind of fun, uh, the Intolerable Acts, then this group called the Black Robe Regiment in their deal, then we got the Bunker Hill, then we got the Concord and Lexington deal, and then we, the guys said, oh, let's get together and have a continental congress and figure out what we're going to do, okay? And that was the final blow for the king, okay? Because it looked like there were going to be a, a rebellion. And he's, deal with that. Then we'll do an in-depth look at the clergy. So who was, who was Jonas Clark? I know John knows, but the rest of you know who Jonas Clark was? He's an interesting guy. We'll, we'll come back and talk about him because he was important here dealing with the, with the Concord and Lexington area. Wentworth Cheswell. You know, the Paul Revere ride, okay? Well, there are actually five riders. And one of the, one of the more, more important ones is Wentworth Cheswell. Most of the people who showed up on, on, the, on the commons there to deal with the British were because of, of the, the work that he had done spreading the word in the small villages. Yep. He was also a silversmith, and he, you know, he, he did the image that we have of the, of the Boston Massacre, okay? He's the one that, that made that, okay? Yeah. So, Dr. Re you know, we got Reverend Dr. Matthew, we got Dr. Cooper, we got Whitfield, James Caldwell, John Peter Galenberg, Gabriel Muhlenberg, and Reverend John Wise. 
And we're going to look at each of those, okay? Because they all had a significant impact on what was going on, okay? There was this group called the Committee of Correspondence, where stuff was written primarily by, by Samuel Adams and, and his cohorts and sent out to the communities to be read. Where did they send it? Well, they sent it to the churches. Then we're going to spend one whole lesson talking about the signers of the Declaration, about their lives, because uh, there, there is a lot of misinformation out there about, about them. Okay? Uh, and, and there's a couple of documents out there that just get used over and over that are really inaccurate. Okay? There's a book called The Lives of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence. that was written in the early 1800s. It's pretty accurate. And then there's the wives of the signers, okay? Those are, those are two great references that we use to talk about these 50-some men. Then we get to the Constitution here, okay? So before the Constitution, we had the Articles of Confederation, and part of the discussion is going to be, why wasn't that effective? You know, why didn't they, weren't they just able to go with that? Then we have the two conventions. Then we're going to talk about some of the framers. We're not going to go through. There's a. Some people have listed as many as 300. Okay? We're not. You know, I'm. I'm going to pick a group. Of them that I've been able to get information about and say, here's what I know about these people. Okay. Then the great debate. Federalist or anti-federalist? Do you want a strong federal government? Are strong state governments? Which do you want? Okay. And this, these documents were written not as a book, but as individual documents that were published in local newspapers. And I, I got a kick out of one of the professors that I listened to. He, he said somebody else in, in the college gives the, the the Federalist Papers to his students to read who are, who are law students. And they come back and go, these are really hard to read and understand. And his comment is, yeah, I, I know. that They were written for the farmers in the 1700s, and maybe someday your educational level will rise up to theirs. Okay? Oh. I mean, those that were literate in that period of time was not unusual for them to be able to deal with, with Latin and Greek. Okay? I mean, you, couldn't go to, you couldn't go to college without mastering those two languages. No, the, usually it's the pastor in the town that teaches those. Okay? But most people went to college at age 14, if they went at all. So we're going to look at, at how the Bible, how, how scripture in the Bible influenced very specific areas of our Constitution. Because the founders quoted over and over what, what Bible verse they were using to get that piece in the Constitution. And you mentioned today is Constitution Day, right? 
Then we'll finish up here with now what? Get all this background. Here we are in 2023. <coughs> Excuse me. What do we do with that? Well, first of all, I do not believe it's a battle between political parties. Okay? I think it's a battle between good and evil to control the culture of the nation. <clears throat> in, in current culture, a truth doesn't matter. It's objective truth. It's, what do I want it to believe? So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the responsibility to vote. And then we'll talk about the motor voter issue in Oregon and the mail-in ballot process. And we're going to talk about how do, you, how do you get informed and how do you get involved if you want to get involved. So let me come back here and, and set my foundation here. Okay? As I said earlier, I do not believe it's political parties, although I'm, I'm involved in that area. Okay? But the battle is really between good and evil. And we know this from Scripture, 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What were the works of the devil? Well, slavery. Okay? So it's freedom and liberty or slavery. Okay. So let's define some of those. So how is freedom defined? Well, this is Webster. Remember the, remember the guy that decided he'd write a dictionary? The quality or state of being free, such as the absence of necess necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action. Cambridge Dictionary says the condition or right of being able to allow to do, say, think, Etc. whatever you want to without being controlled or limited. Okay? So scripture says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That freedom is set, at, set free of liberty, Set at liberty from the dominion of sin. Well, I got to spit out pretty soon. I can't even read it. Okay. So, how do we define liberty? Well, this is uh, this is my cut out. The state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way of life, behavior, or political views. As defined by whom? The king or the government in charge, or, or a church, okay? I, I, I want to be able to have my own beliefs here. And if I'm wrong, and, and if I'm wrong dealing with those areas that have to do with scripture, then the solution for that is in the scriptures. Right, somebody said to me a long time ago, listen, you got questions about the new, in the New Testament, the answer is in the Old Testament. If questions in the Old Testament, answers are in the New Testament. Okay? So th th these are not books that are separated. They're only separated by a number of years. So, okay. so this is part of the rest of my foundation. I believe God's hand was on the, on the founding of America from the very beginning for two primary reasons. As an example to the rest of the world of political and religious freedom based upon Judeo-Christian principles, as found in the scripture. 
I mean, God chose the Israelites. America chose God. Okay? So we have a covenant relationship there. And I believe that he, he, he accepted us primarily for this reason and as a protector of Israel. Okay? Yep. Well, God's time is not ours, right? He, he knows the end from the beginning. So here's my conclusion. One of the keys to understand the role of Christianity on the development of our government is found in studying the original documents. Okay? So same as we talked before, I mean, all these lessons are of the same purpose, okay? Provide background on the influence of Christianity on the formation of America. Now, part of what I intended to do at the very beginning when I started working on this class years ago was not, not to give you all of the information, because it's just too much. I mean, there's enough here for a couple of major dissertations in this period of time. But I, I like to spur people to go do their own research, and that's the reason for the list of references. Okay? So we're going to take a look, start in this deal of looking a little bit at colonies in the 1750s. So here are the objectives. The economic, religious, and political conditions in England and Europe that led to the colonization of America. Three geographical groupings of the colonies. Three types of colonial government structures. The type and level of taxation in the colonies. And voting. Who got to vote and why? Okay. Not everybody got to vote. We're going to include the relationship between Spain, France, England, and Native American tribes in the colonies. The similarities and differences between slavery and indentured servants. We had both of those. The role of the Great Awakening on the development of the colonies. So in England, we're going to try to deal with economic, religious, and these political views as of 1750. Yeah. So here's the deal in England. Very high unemployment at about the period of time leading up to this, so probably 50 or 60 years leading up to this point in time. Okay? There was a conversion of large farms to sheep ranches, and that put the tenant farmers out of business. Okay? They had big landowners, had tenants that they leased out pieces to, and, and the big landowners said, no, that's too much hassle dealing with these folks. I'm just going to Go, go to sheep, and it takes fewer people, and no, we don't need you anymore. Okay? So th most of them moved to towns and became what they called the sturdy beggars. Okay? There was high inflation. There was an influx of gold and silver into England and into Europe from the New World. Okay? Not, not out of our colonies directly, but indirectly. Okay? came up from, from the south. So that, that inflation, it was, uh, it was rampant in some places. It was more than 100% a year. Here, here's the piece of good news. Small farmers in England and the few in Europe that were able to own land, okay, they figured out if they sold their land, they could use that money to come to the to the colonies and purchase a much larger 
piece of land. Wouldn't have a building on it. Because okay? ownership in most of Europe and, and in most of England at this time was tentative. Yeah, I've got a document, okay? but the king can revoke that at any time. So the, the religious persecution was pretty rampant in some places. Catholics were, were persecuted uh, in England, not in France, okay? but in some other areas. The Puritans, uh, the English didn't care for the Puritans. They wanted to reform the Anglican church to a Protestant model without the king as a head. Well, you can suppose that didn't, you know, that didn't go over real well because he's the head of the church. Then there was a group called separatists. Separatist. They wanted to break away from the Anglican church. Uh, that's, that's not going to go well. Okay? They were persecuted more than the Catholics. Okay? In, the, in the colonies in the early years, Catholics could not vote, okay? could not own property, I think, with the exception of Georgia. Okay? And I'm old enough to remember that when JFK ran for office, one, one of the big concerns is he was a Catholic and where, where are his, you know, where, is he going to be in favor of America or is he going to bend to whatever the Pope says? Okay. Oh, the Quakers. The, the, the Quakers were an, are an interesting group. Uh, some estimates that are by 1665, there were 65,000 of them in, in England. Okay? They refused to serve in the militia. So some of them had been sent over here. They refused to serve in the militia here also. Okay? They refused to pay taxes, whether they were there or here. And they refused to take an oath to the king. Okay? Well, well, we'll do the political stuff of England when we start next time, because it gets, it gets really complicated. We've got 